Now, lest this objection might lurk in the heart of any man that hears me, I will turn the scales, and that no man might be presumptuous and entertain false persuasions touching pardon, I shall show you that though a godly man may have his conscience out of office to smite him for sin, yet in that case there is great difference between a pardoned sinner and an unpardoned. There are these five particular differences. First, though a pardoned man may have sometimes conscience asleep, yet that pardoned man dares not be so bold and adventurous to sin against conscience, as wicked men do. You have this fully laid down in Scripture, though but darkly. Leviticus 13.10, And the priest shall see him, and behold, if the rising be white in the skin, and it have turned the hair white, and there be quick, raw flesh in the rising, etc. Here were two symptoms of the plague of leprosy, the growing of white hair in the sore, then raw flesh in the rising. The Hebrew rabbins do understand two things by this law. First, the turning of the hair white in in the sore, they note to be continuance in sin, living from youth to old age in sin, till the hair be white and gray. Secondly, there was to be quick and raw flesh in the rising. They understand it to be adventurousness in a sinner, to commit sin against a raw and a galled and a rebuked conscience. Another man might have scabs all over his flesh, yet he was not to be unclean. Verse 13. Then the priest shall consider, and behold, if the leprosy have covered all his flesh, he shall pronounce him clean, that hath the plague. It is all uh, turned white. He is clean. Yet if a man had rawness in the, in the sore, he was to be unclean. To note that a man may have many sins, yet not be unclean in God's sight. But if he sin against the very dictates of conscience, and be bold and adventurous against the gallings of a, per, a perplexed conscience, he shall be unclean. <clears throat> Secondly, take this for a difference. Though the conscience of a pardoned man may not for a time smite him for sin committed, yet he doth not take that course to stifle the checks and to still the voice of conscience as reprobates do. Wicked men take sensual delights to still the checks and voice of conscience. And so Saul did, 1 Samuel 16, 14. But the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and an evil spirit from the Lord troubled him. Verse 17, And Saul said unto his servants, Provide me now a man that can play well, and bring him to me. When an evil spirit troubled him, that was his conscience. Saul called for music to still the voice of conscience. Thirdly, good men care not for jocund company, Mark uh, Mark sixteen eighteen for John had said unto Herod, It is not lawful for thee to have thy brother's wife. <clears throat> Verse 21, And when a, a convenient day was come, that Herod, on his birthday, made a supper to his lords, high captains, and chief estates of Galilee, etc. Good men dare not 
avoid a a reproving, a searching ministry, as Felix did. Acts 24.25, And as he reasoned of righteousness, temperance, and judgment to come, Felix trembled and answered, Go thy way for this time. When I have convenient season, I will call for thee. He could not endure to lie under a galling ministry. Godly men, do not thus. If a man be pardoned, though he hath sinned, yet he is glad when the ministry doth arouse and awaken his conscience. Fourthly, a pardoned sinner uh, dares not content himself under a daubing and a flattering ministry. That will sow pillows under his elbows and say peace when there is none. Jeremiah 23.13 And I have seen folly in the prophets of Samaria. They prophesied in Baal and caused my people Israel to err. Verse 14 I have seen also in the prophets of Jerusalem an horrible thing. They commit adultery and walk in lies. They strengthen also the hands of evildoers that none doth return from his wickedness. They are all of them unto me as Sodom, and the inhabitants of them as Gomorrah. Chapter 8, 11 For they have healed the hurt of the daughter of my people slightly, saying, Peace, peace, when there is no peace. Fifthly, they dare not run into the crowd of employments, that so they might forget uh, the gallings of conscience, as Cain did. Genesis 4, Cain to put off the troubles of his conscience, would fall to buying, building, and drowning himself in the world, that so he might hear no more. A pardoned sinner doth not thus, but if conscience suggests guilt, he prays to God that conscience might speak thoroughly and home to the heart. Sixthly, a godly man doth not wallow and continue in a custom of sin, that so custom in his sin might take away conscience of his sin. Ephesians 4.19 Who being past feeling have given themselves over to lasciviousness to work all uncleanness with greediness. Wicked men give themselves over to a custom in sin that so they might not have conscience to smite them for sin. They are like a smith's dog, a strange dog that comes to a smith's forge cannot abide to have the sparkles of fire fly about him, but that dog that hath always been accustomed to the shop can keep still on, and it never troubles him. Wicked men are like smith's dogs used to the shop, though flashes of hellfire are cast about them, yet they sleep still and dare are not awakened. But godly men do not make use of custom in sin to lull themselves asleep in their sweet lusts. A third difference, that though the conscience of a pardoned sinner doth not smite him for sin, yet it is sooner and easier awakened and raised out of a dead sleep than the conscience of a wicked man. Look from Jesus' eye, and the cock uh, crowing made Peter weep. He went out and wept bitterly. A rebuke to David from the prophet made him cry out, Lord, I have sinned. A reprobate conscience is not so easily put into office, it doth not reprove him. There must be much ado and great labor taken before his dead conscience will hear the rebukes of the word. There is more ado with a wicked man to have his conscience in office than with a godly man. 
Fourthly, there is this difference. Though the conscience of a good man be asleep for a time, and doth not smite him for sin, yet sometime before he dies his conscience shall smite him for sin, there is no godly man in the world but under known sins. If his conscience hath not smitten him, his conscience shall smite him before he dies. But wicked men live and die in sin, and never have uh, the control or rebuke of conscience. Ahaz was troubled by affliction from God, yet conscience never troubled him, for he did yet more wickedly against God. Fifthly, though the conscience of a pardoned sinner may be asleep for a time, and may not reprove him for sin committed, yet a good man's conscience, when it doth reprove him, it doth check him more out of a sense of sin and the dishonor done to God than out of fear of hell or any outward judgments. But wicked men are asleep in their consciences, and if conscience doth ever awake, it is not because sin is sin and because God is dishonored, but because there is hell for sin and because there are outward grievous judgments. When God breaks men by his judgments, then they will put conscience on work but never do it out of a sense of sin. Take this comparison of ducks in a pond of water. Cast but a little pebble stone into the water, and it will make them dive. But let it rattle and thunder in the heavens, and the ducks fear not. A divine makes this a fit emblem of a wicked man's conscience. Cast but a little pebble stone, some present affliction, near a wicked man, and that will make him dive. That will trouble conscience and perplex the man. But let God thunder from heaven. Let the Lord declare all the threatenings of his spiritual judgments against sin, how evil sin is, how God is dishonored by sin, and how the soul is endangered. All these thunderings from heaven cannot make him startle. And thus I have run hastily over the answering of this third objection, I have done it merely for a relief of a perplexed conscience. Thus I have done with this doctrine. I confessed, and thou forgavest. Thou forgavest. To forgive, saith Musculus, is a word of favor or grace, not merit or sanctification. Thou forgavest. It notes pardon of sin. It is not vouchsafed to men by way of debt, but of gift. I confessed, and thou forgavest. Thou forgavest what? Thou forgavest the iniquity of my sin. The sin of my sin. Interpreters have various apprehensions touching the meaning of these words. What it is for God to forgive the iniquity of my sin. I will bring it to a twofold channel. Some there are that by iniquity understand the punishment of sin. I acknowledged my sin, and thou forgavest the iniquity of my sin. That is, thou forgavest the punishment of my sin. The reason of that interpretation is because, in the Hebrew language, the same word that signifies iniquity signifies punishment, and therefore they understand the iniquity of sin, the punishment of sin. But uh, interpreters generally go against this interpretation, for usually the word is taken for sin itself. Again, the whole scope of the psalm is not in seeking the outward punishment to be forgiven, but the forgiveness of sin is referred to eternal guilt. Thirdly, 
here is in the text a sila, which is a note of attention, a note of admiration annexed to this expression. Thou hast forgiven, etc. Surely that would be no wonder to God to pass by an external punishment for that he might do to men whose sins were never pardoned. What is it for God to forgive the iniquity of sin? I answer, the iniquity of sin is meant um, that God, out of his free grace, doth not only simply forgive a sin committed, but he forgives the iniquity of that sin, all the malignity of that sin, all the heinous, aggravated circumstances that may anyways make it great. A learned author, having a, a whole tract upon this psalm, hath these words, The psalmist useth this kind of speech to forgive the iniquity of sin, that he might teach us that it was no light fault that was pardoned. It was sin. It was the iniquity of sin. Sin upon sin, and sin greatened by many heinous circumstances. Yet behold, the great mercy of God. Thou forgavest the iniquity of my sin. Thus much for explaining these words. The observation is this, that such are the riches of God's pardoning grace, that he forgives his people not only sin in the general, but their great sins, such as are clothed with many aggravated and heinous, crying circumstances. Thou forgavest the iniquity of my sin. In the handling of this point, I shall proceed in this method. First, to prove the point to you by an induction of particular instances, then the application of it by several uses. It is a point full of comfort, and indeed I know not such a text in all the Bible that speaks of God's grace in pardoning aggravated sins uh, more clearly than this text doth. First of all, I shall give you an induction of instances that God doth not only forgive his people a bare sin convicted, but God doth out of the riches of his grace forgive his people those sins that you may call the iniquity of sin, sins clothed with many heinous aggravated circumstances. The instance of David that speaks the words, an instance of Peter, another of Paul, Many men that have sinned against light and love, sinned against the checks of conscience and against mercies, are these sins forgiven? Yes, that is my work to prove that God's grace doth forgive sins that are clothed with many heinous and aggravated circumstances to make them great. First, I begin with David because it is the instance in hand. Will you consider David's sin, the sin of adultery, and ransack the bowels of it? You shall find David's sin clothed with great, heinous, and aggravated circumstances to make it great and grievous, and yet for all this, that sin forgiven him. First circumstance to aggravate David's sin. If you consider the quality of it, the kind of it, what sin was it? It was the sin of adultery. Now of all sins, the sin of adultery is an aggravated sin. There are five circumstances. First, he that commits adultery, he sins against his own body. Second, it is a wrong to the body of the woman he is unclean with. Third, it is a wrong to his own wife. Fourth, it is a wrong to Bathsheba's husband. Fifth, it is a wrong 
to the child that is illegitimately begotten in adultery, that an ignominy should be on him when he is born. And therefore David should fall uh, to that sin. It was one great sin to aggravate David's sin. Secondly, if you consider the dignity and the quality of David's person that did commit this sin, he was a king. Now, the greater the person is that sins, the sin is the greater. Third circumstance to aggravate his sin, it was that he did commit the sin after God had given him manifold mercies. So Nathan telleth him, 2 Samuel 12.8. Fourthly, to consider this, that David had a wife of his own, nay, many wives of his own, that did greaten David's sin. And so Nathan told him, for saith Nathan, there was a poor man who had but one lamb, and a rich man that had many lambs, which killed the poor man's lamb. His meaning was that David should commit adultery with the wife of a man that had but one wife, when he had many of his own. Fifth circumstance, if you consider the time when David committed this sin, it was when David's armies were lying in the fields, this was done then, which was done enough to provoke God to make them turn their backs upon their enemies. Sixth circumstance, it was a great injury to a faithful commander in his army, as to Uriah. Seventhly, which is the chiefest circumstance of all, that David should commit many sins to hide that one sin that was an aggravating circumstance. David did commit six sins to hide that one sin of adultery. He sent for Uriah, Bathsheba's husband, to leave the army when they were storming a a place. This might have endangered the whole army. The text saith that David made Uriah drunk, thinking thereby to make him go in to his wife. Third, he used a means for Uriah to father his bastard that he had gotten in uncleanness. Four, When that plot would not take, David did conspire and consult how to kill Uriah. Fifth, David sent a letter by Uriah, wherein Uriah was a messenger of his own death, unknown to him. Sixth, when Uriah was dead, the text saith that David said, The sword makes no difference, for the sword destroyeth one man as well as another. He laid Uriah's death on God's providence only, when it was he himself. Uh, did plot how he should be slain. Oh, where was David's conscience all this while? Where was David's conscience that should thus fall to commit those sins to hide one sin? You account that a heinous aggravation of sin when servants have done an ill turn. If they shall do many ill turns to hide one, this iniquity was found in David to hide one sin. He fell to commit many. Eighth aggravation, with which uh, greatens David's sin, was this, that David should marry Uriah's wife. First he killed the husband, then married the wife. Ninthly and lastly, to make his sin out of measure sinful, David continued under this sin with all these aggravations for nine months together without repentance or remorse of conscience. I do not name this to bolster any man in sin. I only mention this for a distressed conscience, that though thy sin be an aggravated and a great sin, clothed with many 
hideous and heinous circumstances, yet God did forgive such a sin as that, and therefore well may David say, The Lord forgave the iniquity of my sin. Not only sin, but the iniquity of sin. A second instance is of Peter. You all know the story, but it may be you have not looked narrowly into the circumstances that made Peter's sin to be great. In Peter's sin, first consider that Peter should deny Christ when he did make more confident professions that he would cleave to Christ than all the other eleven disciples. When Christ told them, You shall be offended because of me this night, saith Peter, Though all men should forsake thee, yet will not I. Yet none forsaked Christ but Judah, and he, in so shameful a manner as they, this was a great aggravation. Secondly, it is observable that Peter did deny himself to be Peter. In John 18.25, And Simon Peter stood and warmed himself, They said therefore unto him, Art not thou also one of his disciples? He denied, and said, I am not. Thirdly, he said he did not know Jesus Christ. What a horrible fault was that, that he said he did not know Jesus Christ? Luke 22.57, And he denied him, saying, Woman, I know him not. Fourthly, he did not only deny Christ to a single maid, but the text saith he denied Christ to the maid and before all the people there was an open denial of Christ Matthew twenty six sixty nine. now Peter sat without in the palace and a damsel came unto him saying thou also wast with Jesus of Galilee verse 70 but he denied before them all saying I know not what thou sayest fifthly when another damsel came and she said verily thou art one of them and a follower of Jesus Christ, he said a second time, Woman, I do not know the man. Luke 22. Sixthly, he did not only deny, but Matthew said he denied with an oath. Matthew 26.72, and again he denied with an oath. I do not know the man. To swear to a lie is abominable. Seventhly, it is observable, it is said that a third time, There came a man to Peter about an hour after, and saith, Of a truth, thou art Peter. And to the man saith he, I do not know him. Eighthly, this is not all that Peter did. Not only speak a falsehood, not only swear a lie, but Peter did curse himself, if so be he knew Jesus Christ. The text saith he began to curse as well as to swear. Mark 14.7 But he began to curse and swear, saying, I know not this man of whom ye speak. He wished some uh, direful judgment to befall him if he knew Jesus Christ. Some interpreters think that he did not only curse himself, but he cursed Jesus Christ to make the people think that he did not care for Jesus Christ, therefore did use some execration to curse Jesus Christ. And oh, that pardoning grace should reach such a heinous sinner as this was. The third instance was in Paul. You shall see many circumstances to aggravate and greaten Paul's sin. Acts 9, 10 and 11. I verily thought with myself that I ought to do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth, 
which thing I also did in Jerusalem, and many of the saints did I shut up in prison, having received authority from the chief priests, and when they were put to death, I gave my voice against them, and I punished them oft in every synagogue, and compelled them to blaspheme, and being exceedingly mad against them, I persecuted them even unto strange cities. There are no less than ten aggravating circumstances to greaten Paul's sin. First, it was one circumstance to greaten his sin, if you consider the quality of the persons that he did injure. They were not only ordinary men, but they were the saints of Christ. He put the saints of Christ into prison. Secondly, if you consider the number that he wronged, there were many of the saints. Thirdly, if you consider the kind of wrong he did them, he put them into prison. Fourthly, if you consider his severity towards them, he did shut them into prison. Fifthly, if you consider the place where this was, it was where Paul should have learnt to know better things. For there the apostles were, and taught the doctrine of Christ and of Christianity. Sixthly, if you consider the extent of Paul's malice, saith he, when they were put to death, I gave my voice against them. Paul's vote was against the Christians to put them to death. Seventhly, Paul's rage did go against their souls as well as their bodies, for saith he, I did compel them to blaspheme Christ. He labored to damn their souls as well as destroy their bodies. Eighthly, saith he, I was exceeding mad against them. He was even mad with rage and exceeding mad with rage. Ninthly, he drove them from house to house. I drove them into strange cities. And tenthly, which was worst of all, he did through their sides strike at the honor of Jesus Christ. For why did Paul do this to the saints? Saith he, I thought with myself to do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. There was the person he aimed at. Yet Paul, a man forgiven for all this, for he saith when he aggravates his sin, 1 Timothy 11, 12, 13, According to the glorious gospel of the blessed God which was committed to my trust, and I thank Christ Jesus our Lord, who hath enabled me, for that he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry, who was before a blasphemer and a persecutor and injurious. But I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. Thus I have done with the doctrinal part of my text, laying down to you an induction of instances. I am the larger in this, because I know perplexed consciences in trouble of mind are apt but to greaten their own sins. But you can, but can you aggravate it worse than David, Paul, or Peter could do? Yet behold, those sins and those aggravated sins were forgiven by Jesus Christ. I have four words to say in this sermon by way of application there may be in such an assembly as this is whom God might suffer either before conversion or after conversion to be unclean with David to deny Christ with Peter it may be to swear to a lie uh, to swear to a falsehood nay it, uh, it may be engaged to a lie to a falsehood oh take heed of false oaths It may be to persecute the saints of Christ with Paul. Four 
consolations. First, O know it, for thy comfort, O thou disconsolate heart, let thy sin be never so great, yet the mercies of God are greater. Sabian, a learned interpreter, gives to my hand, which is his instance, Lord, my fault is great, but thy mercies are greater. Beloved, I may say to you, though thy sin be great, yet the mercy of God is greater than thy sin. Thou canst not have so many circumstances to greaten thy sin as can be produced in God to greaten his own mercy. You shall read what he saith of himself in Isaiah 44.22. I have blotted out as a thick cloud thy transgressions, and as a cloud thy sins. Return unto me, for I have redeemed thee. Suppose thy sin be only a little uh, cloud, but suppose it be a great cloud, a thick cloud, saith God. I do not only blot sins out like a little cloud, but I will blot out transgressions that are like a, a thick cloud, great sins as well as small, that the mercies of God cover. The sea can as well cover great rocks as little pebble stones, high mountains as well as molehills. God's mercy is an ocean that can cover great enormities as well as lesser infirmities. The glorious body of the sun in the heavens can scatter the greatest mist as well as the thinnest vapor. Great sins as well as small are pardoned by mercy. It is worthy, your notice, what Moses speaks of the mercy seat. It covered the whole ark wherein the law was kept. To don't, uh, saith the divine, though thou art a man or a woman guilty of all the law's breach, not only of one command, but of all the commands. Yet the mercy seat covered all the commands to teach you this, that the mercy of God can pardon the greatest violation of the law. Therefore that wherein the law was kept was all covered by the mercy seat. Take this for thy comfort, O thou perplexed conscience, It may be, when thou art in a corner, move but God and thine own soul together, thou dost aggravate thy sin, and thinkest no man's sin so grievous as thine. Then take this for thy comfort, let thy sin be never so great, yet the satisfaction and sufferings of Christ are far greater. The blood of Christ, saith the apostle, cleanseth us from all sin. The Red Sea did... uh, with as much ease drown Pharaoh and all his host as it could do a single man. The Red Sea of Christ's blood can drown a whole host and a huge multitude of sins, as well as a small lust. Though thou hast need to shed more tears for sin in a way of contrition, yet Christ need not shed more blood for sin in a way of redemption, for he hath saved them to the utmost that come unto God by him. The Apostle triumphing in the fifth of Romans, he means there that there is not so much evil in sin to Damas as there is good in the gift in Christ. For to save, because thy sin is the guilt of a creature, and Christ's satisfaction is the satisfaction of God. Thy sin, the sin of a finite creature, and his sufferings, uh, the sufferings of an infinite mediator. Third consolation is this, to you that are perplexed in conscience, 
that you have committed heinous and aggravated sinfulness, yet that Jesus Christ by conversion doth wipe away the infamy and the ignominy of thy most horrid and scandalous sins before conversion. Suppose thou hast been a notorious infamous creature, yet Christ takes off the ignominy and the infamy of thy sin by conversion. It is observable of Mary Magdalene, she was a notorious whore. Everyone that saw her knew she was a common harlot. There was a woman that was a sinner. The meaning was, she was an infamous, notorious harlot. What is done when Christ converted this woman? Verily I say unto you that wherever the gospel is preached, it shall be spoken what this woman hath done throughout the whole world. Christ did wipe away the infamy of harlotry. He would have renowned the love of that woman to Christ. He would have it spoken of wherever the gospel was preached. Luke 7.47 Wherefore I say unto thee, Her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. Christ did delight to wipe away the ignominy of her harlotry in her afterlife. It is worthy observation that four women are reckoned in the genealogy of Christ. What women were they? They were women that were infamous. The best of them did fall into much scandal and gave much offense. There you find mention of Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and Bathsheba. No more in the genealogy, but these. What were all these women? They were converted women. Begin with Tamar. She committed uncleanness with her father-in-law, an infamous woman, as you have the story in Genesis 38:18. And he said, What pledge shall I give thee? And she said, Thy signet, and thy bracelets, and thy staff, that is in thine hand. And he gave it her, and came in unto her, and she conceived by him. Then you read of Rahab, a common harlot in Hebrews 11.31. By faith, the harlot Rahab perished not with them that believed not when she had received the spies with peace. Matthew 1.5 And Solomon begat Boaz of Rahab. The third woman mentioned in the genealogy is Ruth. What was she? She was not so infamous as the rest were. Yet she ran into a grievous scandal. Ruth came of Moab, whom Lot begat of his own daughter. You have the story in the book of Genesis 19.36. Thus were both the daughters of Lot with child by their father. And the first born bare a son and called his name Moab. What was she? For her person she was a good woman, but as all divines observe of her she did an act an act action that had appearance of evil. What did she? Read the story in the third of Ruth, beginning at the fifth verse. The story saith that she came alone at midnight to Boaz. There was an action full of infamy, which was a shameful thing that a woman should come to a man lying alone. Secondly, she came and lay by him in the night season, 
But it is true, the scripture clears her for anything following. Verse 14, and she lay at his feet until morning, and she rose up before one could know another. There was no vanity, no folly, and no evil. Yet it was a grievous scandal for a woman to be with a man, and Boaz Boaz did uh, fear the scandal of it too. Yet such a woman as this is reckoned in the genealogy of Christ. The fourth woman is Bathsheba. She was unclean with David. What is the mystery of this? Truly all interpreters give this. There are but four women named in the genealogy, all of them infamous, and it is recorded that Christ came from these four to take off the ignominy and infamy of your sins that you have fallen into before conversion. Suppose God should suffer thee to fall into execrable villainies, real and sound conversion to God takes off the reproach and ignominy. Therefore, Christ, to take off the ignominy and reproach from these women, would honor them so far as to reckon them in his own genealogy. The point was this, that such are the riches of God's pardoning grace, that he forgives his people the great sins that are clothed with many heinous and aggravated circumstances. Now, lest any might abuse this doctrine and suck poison from these flowers that are most sweetly scattered up and down the scripture, I shall labor so to handle the matter as to keep off presumptuous men that they be not emboldened in a wicked course of sin. Therefore my use shall be to two sorts of men. First of all, shall be directed to moral and civil honest men. If God doth forgive men great sins, clothed with many heinous and aggravated circumstances as David's sin was, and Peter's sin was, and Paul's sins were, then I have great hopes of pardon. Mine are but sins of an ordinary incursion. Therefore I have hopes my sins are pardoned, because they have not been crying great sins. First of all, consider that God hath shown as much displeasure against small and little sins as against greater and grosser enormities. I will give you some instances. First, of the neglect of Moses to circumcise his own son. One would think that for forbearing the circumcising of a child when a man was in a journey and had urgent business lying upon him, his business should have been a plea to excuse him. Yet, uh, for the bare omission of that, on the eighth day, the Lord met him and would have killed him. Exodus 4.24 And it came to pass, by the way, in the end, that the Lord met him and sought to kill him. Another time the psalmist tells us of Moses' sin in the wilderness. Moses spake unadvisedly with his lips, only a rash word. And what was the issue of that sin? The Lord would never suffer Moses to enter into the land of Canaan. Another instance of Uzzah. One would think it but a small thing for Uzzah to put his hand to uphold the falling ark. It was out of a good intention that the ark should not fall. Yet you know how the hand of God smote Uzzah for it. So likewise of David you would think it but a small matter for a king to number his people. Yet you know how many thousands in Israel God did take away by the plague for that very sin. So that, beloved, suppose thou 
hast not fallen into hideous and heinous wickedness. Yet thou seest little sins displease God as well as great, because sin, though little, yet is against a great God, and little sins displease as well as great. Secondly, that though gross sins may carry a greater infamy, yet little secret sins may carry a greater guilt in them to God. Beloved, the sin of angels, it was but a small sin, a spiritual sin, only one sin. And a sin in thought, too, not of act. Yet you know that for that sin God did tumble the angels out of heaven. Indeed, gross sins carry a greater infamy, but little small sins may carry as great a guilt. Third consideration is this, that small and little sins may be aggravated and clothed with such circumstances as to, uh, may make them great. Two instances in Adam's sin and David's sin. First Adam's sin, you would account it a small matter to eat an apple or some other fruit. But yet that small act of eating the forbidden fruit was so clothed with many circumstances which made it a great and grievous sin. For first, if you consider the state of Adam, he was not as we are, but Adam was a perfect and an innocent creature, and it is a greater evil for a perfect creature to sin than for us that are imperfect. Secondly, consider the place where Adam was. It was in paradise, and yet there to sin. Thirdly, consider the publicness of his person. He did not sin for himself, but in his sin we all sinned. For a private man to sin is an evil, but for a public person, representing other men, his sin is other men's sin. Fourthly, how many aggravations were in the bowels of Adam's sin? There are six. First, there was unbelief in his sin. God did not tell him uh, with an if or an and, but told them peremptorily they should die. Secondly, there was this aggravation that Adam did believe the devil before God. Thirdly, there was pride in his sin. For saith the devil, ye shall be as gods. And that pleased them. It was not enough to be man and woman. But they must be gods. Fourthly, There was curiosity in that sin. You shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. Now, out of mere curiosity to know more than they did know, though they knew enough to make them happy and blessed, did they plunge themselves into this sin. Fifthly, they were not contented with their condition. Sixthly and lastly, there was murder in this sin, for Adam killed himself and all his posterity. For by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin so that in him all have sinned, and so all died. Therefore Adam's sin was so clothed with heinous aggravations that made it very great. Look on David's sin in numbering the people. It was a very small sin, and indeed the interpreters justify the fact in itself it was no uh, sin for a king to number his army, yet there were some circumstances with which this fact was clothed that made David's fact very notorious. There were six heinous aggravations in that fact of David's numbering the people. First of all, there was pride and vainglory. This, uh, Tostatus, saith that the sin of pride and vainglory was David's sin. Secondly, there was carnal dependence in his sin. He would number his people that seeing how strong he was, he might depend on the multitude. That, saith Zacchaeus, 
was David's sin too. Thirdly, there was covetousness in the sin too. Zacchaeus saith, this was David's sin. It is observable that when Israel, when in Israel the soldiers were mustered and the subjects numbered, there was a tax by poll that everyone should pay to the king. This was David's sin that he would needlessly number the people for his, for this same sake. Fourthly, there was curiosity. For David did a needless act. For what need David know every particular man in his kingdom in so vast a confine as Judah was? First Chronicles 23, As if he should have said, If there were civil wars among you, or rebelling in thy kingdom, then to know the number of thy subjects, it were uh, something. But now, what need we? We are all true and loyal to thee. Yet vain curiosity made David do it. Fifthly, there was the sin of sacrilege. This, Zacchaeus notes, for when uh, the people were numbered, there was to be given for the use of the sanctuary half a shekel, as you have the story, Exodus 30, verse 12. When thou takest the sum of the children of Israel after their number, then shall they give every man a ransom for his soul unto the Lord, when thou numberest them, that there be no plague amongst them, when thou numberest them. Verse 13, This they shall give every one that passeth among them that are numbered half a shekel after the shekel of the sanctuary. Compare this with Exodus 38.25, And the silver of them that were numbered of the congregation was an hundred talents, and a thousand seven hundred and threescore and fifteen shekels after the shekel of the sanctuary. David did defraud the sanctuary of that money. Sixthly, in this sin there was an express breach of God's law. This Diodati saith, uh, for his law was the people should not be numbered that were under twenty years, but only those above twenty. Now David did number those that were under twenty years. Exodus thirty fourteen, everyone that passeth among them that are numbered from twenty years old and above shall give an offering unto the Lord. Numbers one three. From twenty years old and upward, all that are able to uh, go forth to war in Israel. Now David, numbering those that were under those years, did transgress the command of God. That is a third consideration to you that say you never run into scandalous sins. Yet consider that little sins may be so aggravated by circumstances as that they become grievous. Suppose thy sin be secret lust and secret passion and secret pride. Beloved, thy sins may have such circumstances as to make them great. Suppose thy sins be against checks of conscience. They are great sins because they are against God's officer in man. Conscience is God's officer in thee and God's register and vicegerent in man. And for thee to control thine own conscience against these accusations and against the convictions and checks of thy conscience. Though the sin be but a small trifle, yet it is very great. He that doubteth is damned if he eats. The apostle saith, It is no sin to eat meat, but if thou thinkest it is a sin to eat meat, and dost it, thou sinnest against conscience. If thy conscience telleth thee that it is unlawful to do this or that, and yet thou wilt venture on it, the apostle saith, He that doubteth is damned if he eats.
If thou doest anything against the rebukes of conscience, it is a great crime, because conscience is God's officer in thee. To eat meat is but a trifle. The question was whether they might eat meat offered to an idol. The apostle saith they might do it. I but suppose conscience in a man might say, I am persuaded that if I should eat this meat that was offered to an idol, I should approve of idolatry. Then saith the apostle, Thou art damned if thou eat. To show that if in so small a thing as eating flesh, then in other matters also, if thy conscience telleth thee that thou sinnest, if thou doest it, and yet doest it, thy little sin is become a great sin. Secondly, the smallest sin may be aggravated if there be a complacency in thy heart to a small sin. Beloved, a small sin that is indulged is a more aggravating sin than a greater sin thou doest fall into with resistance. It is very observable in Leviticus 13.12. And if a leprosy break out abroad in the skin, and the leprosy cover all the skin of him that hath the plague, from his head even unto his foot, wheresoever the priest looketh, Ainsworth admires and wonders what God intends by this law. The meaning is, the leprosy betokens sin. Now if the leprosy or the plague or the smallpox, if it comes out into a scab and comes into the flesh and strikes outward, there is no disease within. But then there is danger when sores strike inward and do not come out in the flesh. This law hath this use in it. If the leprosy were only on the skin, the man was not unclean, though there was sin in his life. Yet sin was not in his heart. Aye, but saith God, if the scab be in sight deeper than the skin, then pronounce him unclean, to show if sin be in thy heart, and in thy life too, though it be but a small sin, yet it is a sin that will damn thee. If I regard iniquity in my heart, Psalm 66.18, the Lord will not hear me. Therefore you that are moral men, that say you thank God that you have not broke out into gross sins, consider, though sin be small, yet your small sins may have such circumstances as may make them very great, sinning against your consciences, or else sin seizing upon the heart. Fourthly, to moral men, that a great and gross sinner may be pardoned, when moral men who never break out into such gross wickedness, may live and die in an unpardoned estate. I will give you but two instances, the one of the Pharisee and the other of the young man in the Gospel. First of the Pharisee in Luke 18. I thank God, saith he, I am no extortioner, no drunkard, no adulterer. I am not this nor that. The Pharisee was a man that never broke out into scandalous sins. What was the conclusion, saith Christ? that he justified himself, was not justified, but the publican was justified rather than the Pharisee. The publican that had fallen into extortion, his office did expose him unto much extortion, which was in allusion to our custom house. He was a wicked liver and yet went away justified. Oh, a civil 
honest Pharisee, a Pharisee that never break out into scandal, yet was not justified. A publican that was a known and infamous sinner went away justified. The prodigal son that ran away from his father spent all his substance, that is his gifts, and went to live among hogs and swine in this world, that is wicked men. Yet this man, a pardoned man, a young man who tells you that he kept all God's commands from his youth, an unjustified man. Yet the prodigal that was riotous from his youth became to be a justified man. I am persuaded the very intent of these scriptures is for this end, that civil, moral men should not presume upon pardon merely on their civil morality. Fifthly, consider that what your sins do want in regard of other men's sins in bulk and magnitude, you may make up in number. Suppose thou hast not been a drunkard, an adulterer, or an oppressor, yet thou hast many small sins, thou hast many secret and small failings. Now remember, many small sins may sooner damn thee than a few greater sins. I may make use of that pertinent scripture in Jeremiah 5, 6, Wherefore a lion out of the forest shall slay them, and a wolf of the evening shall spoil them. A leopard shall watch over their cities. Every one that goeth out hence shall be torn in pieces, because their transgressions are many, and their backslidings are increased. Verse 7, How shall I pardon thee for this? Because their transgressions were many, therefore God comes with a question, How shall I pardon? Beloved, I suppose... Thy sins be not great, yet if they be many, small sins, God may may put this question to you, how shall I pardon you? Let me tell you a paradox, that small sins are as hardly, yea, more hardly pardoned than greater sins are. And the reason is, because a man is not so apt to repent for small sins as he will be for great, because they are not so visible, and therefore a conscience not so apt to do its office to put a man upon repentance. That is the reason of Christ's speech. Verily I say unto you, that publicans and harlots shall go to heaven before them. Why? Because the Pharisees did depend upon their righteousness and did not see their little small sins. A publican, a harlot, that could not but by the light of nature see their extortion, their wickedness and harlotry, they should go to heaven before them that Christ should tell them of their sins and they repent of them. Therefore, though your sins be but small, yet they may be many, and that will greaten your sins. Many small sins may run thee into deeper arrears uh, unto God than a few grosser evils. Oh, then let me persuade you that none of you would presume upon pardon, because you have not fallen into great and grosser evils. Thus, uh, must, thus much for the first branch of the use. The second follows, and that is this. To those that can hear say of their sins as David did, how or, thou forgivest the iniquity of my sin, sins clothed with many hideous and heinous circumstances. First, something by way of astonishment. First, consider, though your gross sins cannot bring your persons into a state of damnation, yet they will bring you into a state of sequestration. 
Though they cannot keep thee from heaven, yet will they keep thee from comfort. God will suspend and withdraw the manifestations of his grace. He will turn his smiles into frowns upon thee. Beloved, this is is sad. Uh, A gross sin will keep thee from the comforts and joys of heaven, though it cannot keep thee from the possession of heaven. The leper in the law was commanded to be shut up out of his own house, and yet he had a right to his own house. Thou mayest have a right to heaven, a right to salvation, yet God may shut thee up, that thou mayest not have the manifestations of reconciled God towards thee. This is astonishment to thee. Secondly, to astonish thee, though thou beest pardoned, yet such woeful commotion, such dismal fears, will arise in thy conscience, that will make thee verily think thou art not pardoned. Beloved, if you fall into gross sins, and repel the sanctifying work of the Spirit, God will withdraw the comforting work of the Spirit. The Spirit of God is compared to a dove. The dove loves to be in clean places. But if the house be nasty, the dove goeth away and will not stay there. God's Spirit is like a dove. It loves to have the house of thy soul kept clean. But if thy soul be filled with noisome and nasty lusts, the Spirit of God will not descend on thee. The greater thy sins are, the greater thy sorrows, anguish, and tortures of thy conscience will be. Philosophers say of evaporation, the more vapors are drawn from the earth, the more the light and luster of the sun is eclipsed. The more sin doth arise from thy heart to thy life, the more thou darkenest the rising of the sun of righteousness, that glorious beams shall not reflect on thee. Thy falling into gross sins may cause woeful commotions and dismal horrors in thy conscience. Consider, is not this grievous, thou pardoned sinner, to think, though this gross sin may not damn my soul, yet before I die it will torture my conscience? If I do speak to a troubled conscience, there is none in the world will say that the sweetness and pleasure of sin can compensate the anguish and torture of conscience with which uh, smarteth for sin. Thirdly, consider thou that fallest into a gross sin, though thou a justified person, yet it will be a harder work and a longer time for thee to attain assurance of pardon than for other men. The deeper a wound is, the longer it is festering and rankling, the harder and longer it will be before it be healed again. David did pour out a river of tears before God, did pour in a drop of the oil of joy uh, and gladness into his heart. David break God's law. God broke his bones. Therefore he prayed, Lord, restore to me the joy of thy salvation, that the bones which thou hast broken may rejoice. It is worthy of observation what you read of Mary Magdalene, a notorious strumpet, There was a woman which was a sinner, that is, a known harlot, a known strumpet, saith Christ. Her sins, which are many, are forgiven her. But did Christ tell these words to Mary? No, Christ spake these words to Simon, in whose house Christ was at supper. Mark the method. Divines make much use of this. Mary fell into a gross sin, but Mary must not know her own pardon. Mary was weeping for her sin, 
and it was revealed unto another that she was pardoned. To show that uh, when men fall into gross sins, God doth many times hide comforts from them. Other men shall have good hope of their pardon more than they have of themselves. Let this be astonishment and a check to you to take heed of falling into gross evils. For God may keep you long without manifestation of pardon. Fourthly, to astonish thee, consider that thou dost run a very dangerous and desperate hazard to venture upon the commission of sin, upon presumption of pardon. What thou sin, that may be as painful to thy conscience as the breaking of thy bones, because Christ can set thee in joint again? Wilt thou sin and cut gashes in thine own flesh, because thou knowest the blood of Christ to be a sovereign balsam to, conf- to cure thy wounds, for by his stripes we are healed? I now come to give you something by way of direction. Hast thou been a man that God hath left to thine own heart's lust? Thou hast not only sinned, but the iniquity of sin. Sin aggravated them. First, take this rule, labor in the, re- in the residue of thy days to be as eminent in grace as thou hast been formerly, notorious in sin. Hath thy lusts been strong? Labor now that thy affections may be strong, Godward and heavenward. Hast thy sin been clothed with many heinous circumstances to make it great? Let thy graces be clothed with many holy circumstances to make them great. Though this cannot make a compensation to the Most High, for nothing thou hast or doest can recompense God for the wrong sin doth him. Yet is this something by way of a holy revenge on thyself. The more thou hast been notorious in evil, thou shouldest labor now to be more eminent in good. Secondly, hast thou fallen into any gross and aggravated guilt? Follow this rule. Labor that the greater thy sin and thy unkindness hath been to God, thou express now the greater love to Jesus Christ for pardoning mercy. O labor, uh, thou that hast great sins pardoned, that thou mayest have great love issued out to Jesus Christ. Christ did not simply ask Peter, Simon Peter, lovest thou me? But goeth higher, Peter, dost thou love me more than these? There was this reason why Christ should ask him this question, because Peter had sinned against Christ more than all the disciples had. Therefore Peter must love Christ more. Do I speak to any that have been taller by the head in sin than any of their neighbors have been? Oh, if thou hast sinned much, love much. The greater the sin, the greater the pardon must be. Therefore on thy part, the greater must thy love be to Jesus Christ. This is held out plain in that familiar parable that Christ used, Luke 7.41. There was a certain creditor which had two debtors. The one bought uh, 500 pence and the other 50. Verse 42, and when they had nothing to pay, he frankly forgave them both. And tell me therefore which of them will love him most. Verse 43, Simon answered and said, I suppose that he to whom he forgave most. And he said unto him, Thou hast rightly judged. The meaning of this is, the two debtors are two sorts of sinners. He that owed a little sum, he could not pay his debt. Though thou hast but a, a few little sins, yet thou canst not satisfy for it. 
He that owed much was a great sinner, as Mary Magdalene. It may be, God hath forgiven thee thy hundred of sins, and thy five hundred of sins. O make good this parable, that he that hath most forgiven uh, love most. The greater thy sin hath been, the greater thy love must be. It is thus uh, with Mary Magdalene. Luke 7.47 Wherefore I say unto thee, her sins which are many are forgiven her, for she loved much. Her love doth hold equipage in proportion to her pardon. Much pardon on Christ's part and much love on her part. O beloved, let me here inculcate this on your thoughts. Have any of you been great sinners? Have you been guilty of aggravated and heinous circumstances? Now find that your love doth carry some proportion to your pardon. Thirdly, hath God suffered thee to fall into the iniquity of sin? Observe this direction. The greater thy sin hath been to God, labor that thy humiliation may be greater, that it may carry some proportion to the greatness of thy transgression. It is observable of what you read of three men in Scripture, of David, Manassas, and Peter. These all sinned greatly, and their sorrow and lamentation did carry proportion to their sin in some measure. Manassas sinned greatly, and the scripture saith of him that he humbled himself greatly before the Lord. Peter did deny Christ shamefully, and Peter went out and wept bitterly. You know, David sinned notoriously, and he mourned exceedingly. Rivers of tears ran from his eyes. He watered his couch with tears. All this teacheth you that the greater thy sin hath been, the greater thy humiliation should be. An observable law that you read of in Leviticus 11, 24 and 25, And for these ye shall be unclean. Whosoever toucheth the carcass of them shall be unclean until the even. And whosoever beareth aught of the carcass of them shall wash their, his clothes and be unclean until the even. Beloved, touching an unclean thing, a man was unclean all night, But if a man carried an unclean thing any length of time, then God saith he shall be unclean till even, and he shall wash his clothes. This law shows that touching an unclean sin requires a humiliation. But if thou hast touched a sin, borne a sin, and hugged a sin in thine arms, then there is greater work required of thee. He was to wash his clothes. O thou must wash thy heart by humiliation. Thou must take more pains with thy heart that has fallen into gross evil than other men should do. Fourth direction, in case thou expect to have a high esteem of pardoning grace, labor thou to find out all the aggravated and heinous circumstances in thy sin. Beloved, do not fear that the seeing of the sinfulness of sin will do you hurt. First look on pardon, and then look on the aggravation of thy sin. This is the way to heighten Christ's merits, and to greaten God's mercy, and extol God's pardoning grace. It is notably mentioned of two men that were famous in this way. It is reported of Eusebius, a holy and a tender conscientious man. When he came to confess sin, he used these words, Lord, there is none have sinned as I have sinned. The devil sinned. Judas sinned grievously. 
but none sinned as I. The devil indeed sinned, but Christ never died for the devil as he died for me. Therefore my sin is a greater sin than the devil's. Judas sinned greatly, but Judas never had the pardon I had. Achan sinned too, but I sinned further than he. O labor to find out what aggravations there are that thy evils are capable of, that so thou mightest come to magnify and greaten the grace of God in thy esteem. A famous story of Austin when God converted him and smote his conscience for the vanity of his youth. How doth he aggravate his sin when he was a boy for robbing of an orchard? He doth aggravate that sin with many circumstances. First, I robbed an orchard merely out of vanity, not out of need. To steal for need is more tolerable, though not justifiable, but when he had enough, that was vanity. Then it was not for the goodness of the fruit, but merely for the lust of the eye. Then I did not rob the orchard alone, but I got others with me. Then it was an unseasonable time of night. Then he went to rob the orchard after he had spent all the day in vain sport. Then what they could not eat they gave to the hogs. Then saith he, I wronged and injured an honest neighbor that never did me wrong. Oh, see how he clothed that sin with many heinous crimes and circumstances. Canst not thou clothe thy uncleanness, thy oppression, thy extortion, thy unjust dealing with heinous circumstances? Let me direct you a little in this rule. First, to aggravate thy sin, consider all sins against the manifestation of God's love are great. When God speaks peace to thee, if thou shouldest then war against God, Psalm 58, this greatens sin. It was an aggravation of Solomon's sin that he sinned against the Lord after God had revealed himself twice to him. 1 Kings 11.9 And the Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart was turned from the Lord God of Israel, which had appeared to him twice. Secondly, it aggravates sin when you commit a sin upon a slight temptation. For a man to sin when he hath little or no provocation, that greatens sin. What made the sin of the devil so great was this, that the angels had no devils to tempt them. For thee to follow the, the stews, for thee to follow thy lust, when the devil doth not tempt thee to do it, when the provocation is merely from thine own heart, this greatens a man's sin. And thus, in the prophet Micah, that men should... Uh, sell the righteous for silver and the needy for a piece of a pair of shoes who and thou shalt recollect and say how have I dishonored God how have I run the hazard of an immortal soul when the devil hath laid no temptation to me this greatens sin exceedingly a third thing to greaten sin by is uh, when a man does sin against the checks and rebukes of his own conscience Conscience saith, Do not sin, do not wickedly. And the man saith, I must, I must, I shall lose all else. When conscience shall arrest thee, and accuse thee of sin, and thou shalt stifle and put by all, this aggravates thy sin. Fourthly, the frequency of the acts of sin, to commit a sin once is not so much, but to fall often into the same sin, this greatens sin. 
Fifthly, complacency of heart in sin, when sin is not only the sin of thy practice and of thy life, but thou delightest in sin. If sin be riveted and rooted in thy heart, thou art unclean. Canst thou go to God and say, Lord, what grace is here? And what mercy is here? That thou hast pardoned great transgressions and those sins that I can aggravate by many heinous circumstances? I have read my pardon, and yet I have now blotted my pardon. Canst thou say I have sinned? And upon a very trivial occasion and on a small temptation, I am a drudge to the devil on an easy temptation? When the devil can draw thee by a silken thread to a sin? Oh, it is a great aggravation. When conscience arrests thee for sin, and thou wilt still be stifling the cries of conscience. Would you greaten sin? You are in a ready way to greaten mercy and pardoning grace. That is a fourth direction. Fifthly, if God doth out of the riches of his grace pardon aggravated sins, Take you heed that when you have obtained great and gracious pardons for great and grievous sins, you do not extenuate your sins. Do not say of your sins as Lot of Zoar, Is not this a little one? Do not say of willful enormities as Jacob did, for adventure it was an oversight. Do not mince the matter, and do not lessen sin, but greaten sin. The reason why you should not do it Consider first, by extenuating sin and making it small and little in your eye, you will lessen the greatness of God's pardoning grace, who will value the skill and physic of a, uh, of a kitchen woman. That physician is valued that can cure a deadly and dangerous disease. When a man's spirits are gone and strength is consumed, he is prized. Thou, by lessening thy sin, dost lessen pardoning grace. By the extenuating of thy sin, thou dost lessen the value of Christ's blood. Three, thou wilt lessen thine own repentance and humiliation. For what man will labor after great humiliation for small transgressions? Therefore there is a world of wrong done to thine own soul. When God hath pardoned great transgressions, if thou should extenuate and lessen the greatness of thy evils. Sixthly, content not yourselves with slight and superficial repentance for falling into great and gross evils. Be not like uh, Louis, the eleventh king of France, when he did an evil against his conscience. He pulled off his hat and took his crucifix and cried, God, for mercy uh, for what he had done. So many men, if they can but cry, God, mercy, in ordinary in ordinary and general uh, terms, they think they have made a compensation to divine justice. And thus I have done with the second branch of the use in these six particulars. Stillwater's Revival Books is now located at PuritanDownloads.com. It's your worldwide online Reformation home for the very best in free and discounted classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, MP3s, and videos. For much more information on the Puritans and Reformers, including the best free and discounted classic and contemporary books, MP3s, digital downloads, and videos, please visit Stillwater's Revival Books at PuritanDownloads.com. 
Stillwater's Revival Books also publishes the Puritan Hard Drive, the most powerful and practical Christian study tool ever produced. All thanks and glory be to the mercy, grace, and love of the Lord Jesus Christ for this remarkable and wonderful new Christian study tool. The Puritan Hard Drive contains over 12,500 of the best Reformation books, MP3s, and videos ever gathered onto one portable Christian study tool. An extraordinary collection of Puritan, Protestant, Calvinistic, Presbyterian, Covenanter, and Reformed Baptist resources. It's fully upgradable and it's small enough to fit in your pocket. The Puritan hard drive combines an embedded database containing many millions of records with the most amazing and extraordinary custom Christian search and research software ever created. The Puritan hard drive has been produced to assist you in the fascinating and exhilarating spiritual, intellectual, familial, ecclesiastical, and societal adventure that is living the Christian life. It has been specifically designed so that you might more faithfully know, serve, and love the Lord Jesus Christ, as well as to help you to do all you can to bring glory to His great name. If you want to love God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, then the Puritan hard drive is for you. Visit PuritanDownloads.com today for much more information on the Puritan hard drive and to take advantage of all the free and discounted Reformation and Puritan books, MP3s, and videos that we offer at Stillwater's Revival Books.